And welcome to Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. This is a weekly podcast which brings you, we hope and believe, much light with leading lights as guests. And this week should be no exception to that. Our guest is Jennifer Egan, one of America's leading fiction writers and a regular contributor to New York Times Magazine. She's the author of a number of highly praised novels, including A Visit from the Goon Squad, which was awarded the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award. And a recent related novel, she actually describes it as a sibling novel with a number of the same characters from Goon Squad, titled The Candy House. Other novels include The Invisible Circus, which became a motion picture starring Cameron Diaz and Joanna Brewster, Look at Me, The Keep, Emerald City, and Manhattan Beach, which was awarded the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction. Her fiction has appeared in Harper's, Plowshares, and The New Yorker. In fact, The Black Box, a science fiction story, was released as a series of tweets on The New Yorker's Twitter account. She's also served as president of PEN American, PEN America, that is, which works to protect free expression and liberty of writers in the United States and across the globe. And welcome, Jennifer Egan. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Happy to have you here. And let me say, I, I teased this uh, edition, uh, or I should say this episode, that's podcast language of uh, Gray Matter with Michael Krasny, by saying I would say something publicly that I haven't said before. I've praised Jennifer's week and work on a number of occasions when we've been in conversations together. What I probably haven't said is that I believe in her talent going all the way back to her earlier work, her earliest work, and it's proved me a, a bit more prescient than I usually am, or more of a kind of... Uh, foreteller of the future, because the work that she's done has really made its mark and had great impact. It's innovative, it's wide-ranging, it's extraordinary. And uh, we're going to talk about her work, um, but I thought first we'd talk about fiction itself and the future of fiction, now that AI seems to be writing novels and maybe encroaching on what those of you who have written novels and novels that have made great impact, novels that even included in the case of um, the Goon Squad novel, 70-page PowerPoint, um, I mean, you were creating novels in different ways, and you still are, but I think this AI stuff uh, ought to really give us pause. I mean, since Gutenberg, I don't know if we've had anything quite this dramatic. Your thoughts? I mean, especially someone who's written about technology and written about the future. Well, I would need to see a novel written by um, AI before I could really judge its ability <laughs> to do that. I mean, it's it's really hard to write a good novel. And the I think that the thing that makes fiction special, that as far as I can see, nothing has really managed to uh, displace yet, is that it is the one form that takes us really deeply inside the consciousness and point of view of another human being. You know, any anything that that is starting with an image is almost by definition not doing that. So if we're if we're watching television, or if, frankly, if we're looking at a screen, um, looking at an image, we're on the outside, and and the creator is trying to give us a sense of what it's like to be inside. But with fiction. The absence of imagery, the use of language to evoke inner life is really unusual. I guess I'm a little bit skeptical that a machine can accurately do that job, but I'm I'm curious. I, I, I'm curious to see what uh what you know Chat GPT is capable of. I guess I, I don't feel that threatened by it. Maybe, maybe only because I haven't seen what an awesome fiction writer it is. Well, the claim is that it can write uh, at least poetry and maybe even plays and essays that are comparable to some of the best work around, or at least close to being comparable. 
Really? Have you seen any of that work? Do you I've, agree I, with that I've, assessment? I've seen the work and I don't agree. No, but this is what at least <laughs> some of the would-be savants are saying about it, that it's that good. Or I mean, student essays, for example, you know, are supposedly being replicated by or being established by these bots and created by them. And well, they're good. Sure, they're good. But that's a very different uh, level of um, accomplishment that we're talking about. Um, I, I mean, not to I, I recognize it is a huge thing. And in fact, there's a chapter in the Candy House where a character is turning um, is turning dramatic uh, elements from movies and books into mathematical equations. And in my mind, the point of that work that he's doing was to create some sort of um, machine that could generate plots that would be satisfying. So in a way, I was sort of imagining something very much like ChatGBT that could spew out creative products that would be narratively satisfying using these mathematical equations. But what I was also assuming was that they would have a very generic quality. And I guess the question is, you know, um, I mean, if ChatGBT can produce decently generic fiction, then I guess we human fiction writers will have to uh, up our game to do something that it can't do and uh, not write generically. I don't know. Uh, you think about upping your game? With every I novel you do. write? With every novel always. you write? Yeah. And you mentioned, I, I always want to get better. <laughs> and you mentioned images before. Do novels begin? Do your novels begin often with an image? No, they, well, I don't know. I guess it depends how you define image. They start with a time and a place. So I, I tend to start with more of a feeling, which is of a kind of physical environment. I think that's the best way I could put it. There is a visual component to that, but it tends to start more with a feeling. And sometimes that feeling can have sort of a genre element to it. Like with Manhattan Beach, it was this kind of noirish sensibility of, of New York City in wartime. Um, you know, in certain chapters of the Candy House, like in one of them, it was very much this feeling of the the dense redwood forests around Mendocino, um, just that. And yes, yeah, so there is a visual component to it, but also all of the other senses equally. And the first question that I, I don't really ask it consciously, but when I'm writing original material, which I do by hand without a plan for my first draft, the first I guess notion that arises is who is perceiving this environment and that's the beginning of a character and then who else is there and that's more characters and then what they say and do becomes the plot but it really comes about very improvisationally and the first thing is the environment but you're also in those characters aren't you yeah i mean sometimes sometimes i'm perceiving them from outside but i'm in some point of view some some entity is perceiving even if it's just a third person omniscient narrator and that is actually the first inkling i have of who is populating whatever world it is that i'm kind of fumbling my way into you're creating a world you're not fumbling your way into it you're creating a world maybe even a cosmos aren't you well, it, the funny thing is, yeah, I mean, there's no denying that, but it doesn't really feel that way. And I guess that's why it is a little like improvisation, because, you know, when you think about theatrical or musical improvisation, it's sort of a collaboration. Everyone is leaning into a certain line of action and kind of going with it. That's a little bit the feeling I have when I'm writing fiction. 
although I'm doing it on my own, there's almost a feeling of it sort of coming from elsewhere, which I think is just another way of saying that I'm not consciously in control of it. And that is what I want because my conscious mind thinks more generically. Back to your earlier point, my conscious mind comes up with stories that maybe ChatGBT could think of because I'm drawing on a sort of groupthink that is not really that fresh or interesting. I need to get underneath that to write anything very good. And I do it through this improvisation. That groupthink uh, plays a very central role in Candy House, or the idea of groupthink, doesn't it? Yeah, that's true, because at the core, well, there are a lot of chapters that don't involve this at all, but at the core, the, the through line is that this machine exists that allows people to externalize their memories, their consciousnesses, and if they want, it's purely optional, but if they want, they can share them to a collective, to an online collective as the price of access to that collective themselves. So this is a model we all know very well. Um, you give to get. And it's a model that, um, as some wags would have it, is a kind of Faustian bargain. And I'd like your thoughts about that, or I'd like you to reflect on that. That is, what we give up in the way of privacy, we get connection and convenience in return. Well, one thing about the machine, which is called Own Your Unconscious, is that in a way, it's a little bit of a... It's a little bit of a MacGuffin. It's, it's an in a certain sense, it's an exaggerated version of what the internet already does. It, 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 we give an enormous amount for the access and the information that we get online. And so, you know, the idea that there are unintended consequences to all, all forms of technology is, is, you know, I think indisputable and very old. I mean, if you think about climate change, we're dealing now with the unintended consequences of all of the freedom and, you know, technological and geographical revolutions brought about by, you know, the combustion engine. It took a very long time for that price tag to become clear. Now that it has, it's very hard to extricate this technology. But with much technology, we lunge at it for all the things it can give us without reflecting on what we may have to pay now or later. And this became another, I guess that wasn't really the point that, that wasn't what interested me the most about using this machine, this MacGuffin of a machine, but it was certainly an aspect of it that I knew I needed to contend with. Well, the one responsible for this machine, uh, who actually had help from a Brazilian anthropologist, is a character who we saw before in the Goon Squad novel. And uh, I'll talk about him for a moment, because whenever you read about Jennifer Egan, you read, she dated Steve Jobs, and... Uh, that he installed her first Macintosh computer in her bedroom. Uh, and I wondered, this prototype of characters, especially now with Musk and uh, Bix, your character, and Steve Jobs, is there a kind of technological character or character in technology? You hear all of these sort of facile things about people who are, um, I'll use the word advisedly, but of that ilk, let's say, or people who have that kind of staggering genius that can move us in an entirely different direction, shift where we are in a way that is really dramatic. In other words, these captains of industry, do they, are they archetypal in your mind, some ways? 
Not really. I think I think archetypes are usually a measure of our distance from a particular character. In other words, if I were thinking in terms of archetypes, I would be writing very generic stuff. Um, so, and, and that's true of really all generalizations, I would say about groups of people. So I, I share your perception of what that type is like, but to me, Bix is, I, I can't even really connect him to them. He's just his own guy. Um, I've been interested in him ever since I wrote about him very glancingly in A Visit from the Goon Squad, because he... Uh, at the, standing with some friends after taking ecstasy and partying all night, standing next to the East River, he basically predicts the impact of social media. Um, he says, "Everything, everyone we've lost will find or they'll find us. And when I remember, I still remember writing that and thinking, oh, because that, that scene is happening in 1993, thinking, I wonder if he will invent social media. Um, and what would that be like? Because for one thing, he's African-American, which is, speaking of archetypes, it is absolutely not part of the archetype of the tech wizard. These are very often white guys or certainly were back in the 90s. So he always seemed like his own man. And if anything, very different from that archetype, which is what interested me. Yeah, and you speak admiringly of him even now. You get into these characters, you live with them, right? Yeah, it's funny. They I don't write about people I know at all. In fact, I'm, that's my weakest point. I'm terrible at writing about myself. I'm not a good essayist. I'm not a good memoirist. Um, so I'm always writing about people I don't know, I have never met. But then, of course, I get to know them well. And they end up in my memory occupying sort of the same mental space as people that I've known at one point or another. Um, so, for example, when I think about going to Rockford, Illinois, where I no longer really know anyone, I think, oh, yeah, that's where my grandparents lived and where my mom grew up and also where Moose, the academic, lived and taught at Rockford College. And Moose is a guy that was in my novel, Look at Me. But in my mind, visiting Rockford involves all of those people, including the, the made-up ones. <laughs> Getting some questions, and let me uh, sort of thread a few of them in now. John uh, from Reno, Nevada wants to know, what's the most valuable lesson you learned early in your writing career, and how does it still impact you today? Well, I think that the one of the first lessons I learned is that, for me, revision is really, really important. Now, everyone has a different process. You know, Graham Greene wrote a perfect page every morning, and that amounted to a book a year, and he could start drinking at lunch. More power to him. It doesn't work that way for me. So when I was working on my first novel, I, I had learned that I like to write by hand and that I could spew out a lot of content sort of without thinking. Then I typed it up and I thought, well, that's a book, right? It looks like a book. It looked so nice as a big fat stack of pages across the room. But what I discovered was it was unreadable because, and I discovered that because whenever I would send it to anyone, they would become impossible to reach, uh, including my own mother briefly. So what I learned was that that outpouring by hand was important, but the next part was possibly even more important, which was years of revision which is really tantamount to more writing. And so for I'm just a multi, multi, multi-draft person. 
And I've really stuck to that. I get a lot of feedback. I do a lot of drafts and I, it's a very fluid, I'm not very precious about any of it. It's a very fluid process. When you talk about multi-drafts, like how many drafts did Visit from the Goon Squad go through, you know? Well, that was written piecemeal, as was The Candy House. So some chapters way more than others. Um, but, you know, I can I can go as many as, you know, 60 plus. Uh, but that sounds a little more extreme than it really is, because if you think about it, I'm doing this by hand on hard copies. But if you if you called it a new draft every time you started from the beginning of a document on your computer and scrolled through making changes, that those drafts would add up very quickly. I, you know, when you think about all those stories becoming a novel or having the unity of a novel, that's uh, almost an American tradition. It goes back to Winesburg, Ohio, and um, well, Hemingway's first work of uh, of great importance, and one of Faulkner's earlier works, Go Down Moses, and so forth. Um, do you sort of have that notion in mind when you're writing these stories individually that this is going to have that kind of unity? I, 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 at a certain point, yes. I mean, with A Visit from the Goon Squad, I started by writing what I thought were just several different freestanding stories, but they seemed to be connecting. And I found them to be amusing in the way, in the, the fact that they didn't feel like they were part of one book because each one was written very differently and yet they seemed to fuse. And there's a certain kind of story that lends itself to telling in that way, which is much more of an ensemble, kaleidoscopic kind of tale that's about a lot of people, um, you know, in, in, in who are connected but loosely. It wouldn't that that sort of structure wouldn't work for every kind of story. But there's no question that it is it is a great way to tell a certain kind of story with the Candy House. I was even less sure that it would be a book because I thought I don't want to write fan fiction of my own novel. So unless these related chapters can add up to something that really has its own power and purpose and organic soundness, then I would just publish them separately and not have to and not create one one book. You know, I have pretty high standards about what a book needs to do. So I wasn't sure I would meet those standards. We're talking to famed writer Jennifer Egan, and uh, I went back and read an essay you wrote in Time magazine. You were talking about not writing essays that have anything personal in them, but in a sense, it was a kind of personal essay, not about memoir or anything like that, but about the need for literature, for a democracy to thrive, and it obviously came from the heart. And yet, all this power of literature and the cultural resonance that we associate with literature seems to be waning. There are too many forms to... Well, not necessarily replace it, but supplant it, maybe in many instances replace it. Um, why is literature, and particularly fiction, so important for democracy? Well, I think fiction is, I mean, deep reading of any sort. I, to, to, to speak to your second point first, there are so many, there are gigantic and powerful entities doing everything they can to keep us from reading deeply. The smartest people in the world are trying to figure out how to make us return to social media apps, news feeds, and all the rest of it. That's how they make money. So for us to read deeply involves resisting all of that. And I think we kind of need to think about it that way because we really, and I include myself 100% in this, we are getting played a lot <laughs> because our attention is extremely valuable. 
So why does it matter to read deeply? For some of the reasons that we talked about before, you know, being inside other points of view, thinking critically and analytically, engaging deeply with um, other ways of thinking is what keeps the mind flexible and strong and and makes us citizens able to evaluate the the world around us and make good choices that's the reason that you know 200 plus writers around the world are in prison right now you know we we worry in this country about whether people are reading enough but in countries where autocrats are ruling the worries writers have are quite different <laughs> they're worried about whether they're going to get thrown in jail so I think it's easy for us in a in a country that has been more or less reliably democratic for quite a long time to take for granted the power of deep reading um and and the and the the importance of mental agility and the ability to think clearly and to question authority because in countries ruled by autocrats um, those qualities are not encouraged. And the first way to put, to put the kibosh on them is to imprison writers who threaten them. Yeah, I want to talk about that with you because, as I said in the introduction, you served as president of PEN America and wondering about what happened on your watch and particularly with respect to human rights. Uh, but before we go there, there are those who are saying that uh, American democracy is being eroded in the deep reading that you're talking about and the freedom that's associated with it. Those who see it coming from the right, DeSantis in Florida, and uh, also uh, an attempt to curb, ro change Roald Dahl, uh, even something as minor as that. But on the left as well, the desire to make sure that a certain kind of lexicon uh, or word usage doesn't exist. It used to be censorship over sex, and now it seems there is more censorship or attempt to impel censorship. Politics. Yeah, I mean it. It, it is. It is a moment when what you know, there are many entities and individuals are raising questions about what one can say. Um, to speak about censorship from the left, the one thing I would say about you know some of the disputes that I witnessed when I was president of Pan America were about things like cultural appropriation and the feeling that it isn't everyone's right to write about just about anything. And what I would say to that is that, you know, I haven't heard anyone make an argument for a kind of imagination police. I don't think any of us wants to live in that world. That's Vladimir Putin's world. I think that sometimes um, a sense of frustration over um, representations that might not feel accurate kind of spills over into a more generalized condemnation of, um, you know, the the right someone has to write about this or that. But I, I do think that, you know, every I don't know any creators who are who seriously want to live in a world where um, imagination is curtailed and policed. Well, when we think about something like American Dirt, uh, you know, here's a young woman who Imagine what it was like, got into the consciousness of uh, undocumented immigrants and created a whole narrative around that. And it was called cultural appropriation. I mean, people have always gone into other minds. You do it and you're writing, right? I mean, if we're not allowed to do that anymore, my career will be, as a fiction writer, will be over. Um, but again, I, I don't really think that the I, I, there's no question that there was an explosion of outrage and a, a chaotic 
um, furor surrounding that publication, but I have not heard anyone make a serious argument for imagination police. I don't think any creator wants to live in that world. And that makes me feel little as though the, the debate, the language of the d debate itself has pushed things beyond a point where anyone really wants to be. Another question uh, from Alex in Novato. How much of a story have you worked out when you first start writing? Surprisingly little. <laughs> um, as I say, I sort of, I start with a sense of environment and I begin a first draft without a plan. So that is a very open-ended way to start. I write a first draft, which in the case of a book like The Candy House, I wrote in pieces. So I would not be writing, you know, hundreds of pages without um, stopping. But in the case of Manhattan Beach, I did write hundreds of pages without stopping. I wrote a first draft for about a year and a half before I started typing. But whatever the length, I write it out, I type it up, I read it over. That's often very painful, especially when it's long because I've, you know, it's a big chaotic mess. And I read it and I try to see what feels alive and of interest in that chaotic mess. And that, at that point, I become very systematic. At that point, I do start making outlines, very detailed and long outlines that try to take stock of what I think the book is now, what I think is interesting about it, and how to revise it, how to begin that long process of revision, kind of to move it toward what I think it could be. But I can't do that kind of planning before I start because it's the material itself that gives me the ideas. So it's very much a dialectic for me between instinct and a kind of blind outpouring, and then a very systematic and cold look at what I've got and how to make it better. So the initial movement before all that revision that you talked about before is kind of a jazz improvisation, isn't it? It truly, I think improvisation is the right word, although I say that having never done any kind of improvisation on stage, I don't play an instrument and I've never acted. So I'm kind of, one of my kids took a, a comedy improv class in high school and I went to a bunch of performances and I remember thinking, this is exactly how I write, because the whole idea is you don't you don't stop the action. You have to keep going. And everyone gravitates together toward what feels the most alive and, and goes with that. And that's very much what I'm doing. So there will be days where I just feel like I'm basically spinning my wheels. And but and then other days where something sort of feels like it's happening and I, I lean into that. And then I also don't read over what I've written after I finish. I only read it the next day to get back into the flow. And sometimes I find it's actually better than I thought or worse than I thought. So in the moment, I can't even really tell how it reads. I only know how it feels. It's very instinctive. Is it more often better than worse or more often worse than better? It's probably 50-50. <laughs> Well, you, we're also talking about music, and you know, "Visit from the Goon Squad" had a lot about music in it, a lot of very significant things about music in it. Are you actually hearing different kinds of cadences and chords with the language? Do you have a rhythm with that language that you hear? That's such a great question. I I think a lot about the music and the rhythm of language 
Um, and one reason I do is that the, my writing group, which is uh, to whom I dedicated the Candy House, some of whom I've been working with since the 90s, the way we work is that we actually don't look at anything on a page. We only read aloud to each other. And there are lots of reasons for that. One of one of them is everyone's busy. No one wants homework. Let's just have the experience all together. But it forces the reader to hear the rhythm and the sound of the language in a way that I often don't if I'm just looking at something on the page. So I think about that a lot. I mean, it's basically a tool of fiction that is, you know, that one is way better off making good use of. Um, so I, I think about it a lot. And I also really love audiobooks. I'm a huge audiobook listener. And I find that I am more aware of the language in an audiobook than I am when I read it on the page. And I tend to read classics because I find that anything less than excellent quality in the language becomes almost intolerable hearing hearing it aloud at book length. So I'm I'm pretty attentive to the audio part of the experience. The sounds you're attentive yeah. to, yeah. In fact, talking about classics, um, I made a little inward promise that one of these days, not necessarily today, I would talk with you about Samuel Richardson's Clarissa because we did an event together for the Humane Society and that came up. And you, I mean, your ecstasy about thinking about that novel is evident. I mean, it's an extraordinary mm. novel, probably the longest novel in the English language when you put it all together. Um, people just don't read it, don't know it anymore. And there's something very sad about that. But when I think about the origins of the novel, I think about Richardson, I think about Defoe, I think about Bernie. I also think about Lawrence Stern, which is a whole different kind of novel. And, you know, we've been hearing about the death of the novel now ever since Joyce's Ulysses. Uh, obviously, it hasn't happened. Like I said, you've helped reinvent and reinvigorate it, to your great credit. Um, but are we at the kind of, I'll use a John Barth Fraser, at the end of the road here, do you think? Uh, do we need to keep reinventing it, especially with technology? Well, it's I love that you brought up Stern because what 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 Tristram Shandy reminds me of is that the novel was invented to be really kind of wild and eclectic. You know, it it, it seems to me and I'm I'm not an expert, but you know, the uh, writing storytelling in this looser prose style let writers do things that epic poetry just didn't really allow them to do. So when I'm at my most quote unquote innovative, I actually feel like I'm being a real traditionalist because I'm looking back to the beginnings of the novel when it was asserting itself as a genre that could do anything. I see no reason why the novel should disappear. It's true that there are there's a lot of competition for our attention, but so far none of that competition has managed to do what novels do, which is place us inside the point of view and the mind of another human being. I remember one of my sons was watching people streaming video game footage. So the this is a huge thing among kids. Um, he, he was watching people play video games. So he was looking at their screen and listening to them narrate their thoughts as they were playing. The first thing I thought was, okay, it's over. Like th the world is ending because I'm so tired of arguing with him about playing video games. And now it's not even that he's watching other people play video games help. But then I had a revelation. 
it was doing for him what fiction does because he had the illusion that he was actually inside their minds. He was looking at the game as they played it and hearing their thoughts as they narrated them aloud. It was the, and he's a huge fiction reader. It was the very same impulse that it was satisfying. But even there, while we have the illusion that we're hearing every thought that's going through this person's head as they play the game, in fact, it's totally performative. It's a performance. So once again, we're looking at an image and we're on the outside. Bottom line, I think it is up to us, the fiction writers, to make sure we are doing good work and writing work that is taking advantage of all the things fiction can do and being culturally relevant so that people will want to read our books. If, if they're doing it because they have to, we, we've lost. We, it, it needs to be enticing and give people something that they're, they're not getting anywhere else. And what does cultural relevance mean to you? Well, that's an interesting question. As I use those words, I thought, that's a little problematic. Of course, that's what you immediately <laughs> focused on. I, I think that that's one of those things that's very hard to control. I mean, I think one reason I write in the in the unconscious improvising way that I do is that I feel like that is the my greatest shot at having all of the forces around me that exist in this moment operate through me. I mean, one thing I really realized when I was writing Manhattan Beach is that there's so much information compressed in fiction. You know, we have this idea that, oh, I, I want to read nonfiction because I want to learn things. But what I found was that fiction written in, in another time, in that case, the years of World War II, contained all kinds of cultural assumptions and information that went without saying at the time. And it made it extremely fascinating for me as a researcher to look at it later. I guess all I'm really saying is, I think the best, our best shot at cultural relevance is to be engaged ourselves, well aware of what's going on around us and, and you know, observing always, listening carefully, um, and availing ourself, ourselves of the world that we live in. Well, when you talk about the research of went into Manhattan Beach and it was pretty prodigious, uh, obviously you got very turned on and excited about it. It was evident in what you were able to weave into the novel and uh, the novel became the one novel about New York City one year where everybody read the novel or at least was encouraged to read the novel. Uh, but all that information that was distilled about the shipyards and about the Navy and about World War II and so forth, I've heard a lot of writers say, boy, you know, the research was more interesting than writing the novel. I was so enticed by the research that it became a, more of a task to try to uh, write the novel. Your feelings? That's interesting. I, I, I did not feel that at all, no, because, they, because this was stuff I would never have been interested in otherwise. I mean, merchant sailing? I, I would be on the elliptical machine reading the, uh, you know, an, uh, a manual from 1942 about an officer's manual from 1942 from about merchant sailing, like by no standard was this the kind of reading material that could normally entertain me while exercising. So it really was the book itself that made this information feel relevant and exciting. However, I will say this, I used to sometimes read historical novels and think, oh, this person is showing off. They want to tell me all these things they've learned. And I didn't feel that, but I did notice that 
I became so fascinated by some of this research that I lost touch with how fascinated the average reader might be. <laughs> and I think if I ha if I read that book now, I might remove a very thin layer of fact. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to do it, and I I can't. But um, but there is research is so beguiling and so um, kind of mesmerizing. And as with so many things in life, the more you know, the more there is to know, the more exciting all of these facts become. That, that I definitely felt that kind of hypnotic effect of research. Do you also feel sometimes, uh, like you just kind of indicated, I wish I could do this again or do this over? I mean, Faulkner said about the Son of the Fury, uh, I never got it right. Even when he wrote an appendix 16 years later, he didn't think he got it right. Uh, well, I don't reread my books, partly because there's just no point in going backward in that way. Um, I'm sure I would make changes to all of them. Are you kidding? I mean, I'm not an easily satisfied person. I, in fact, I do keep like I catch things in parts that I read aloud. You know, the paperback of um, The Candy House is just about to come out. I, I removed some word repetitions that I only caught because of reading aloud at readings. So... You know, you do your best, but it, it's it's hard to catch everything. And I'm sure there are things that I would like to change, but I, I try not to even know that. Well, you can be too hard on yourself. I remember reading my dissertation, my PhD dissertation aloud, and suddenly I heard awkward echoes on a couple of occasions, and I thought, I have to change these. Who notices them when they read an awkward echo? You know, it comes out from the oral and the auditory. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think there is that. There, there, I my I try to basically take the point of view, just move on. What matters more than anything else is to keep developing. And I do think that obsessing about little mistakes, which is something I can really do, I have that tendency, that all feels like just not a great use of my time. So I, I try to avoid things that encourage that side of me. Um, just because, A, there's not much I can do, and B, it's sort of directly counter to what I'm really trying to do, which is get better and do better work. How much does the audience figure into that and into your consciousness? I mean, to the extent that I use many readers along the way, I'm extremely eager to know whether what I think I'm doing is what I'm actually doing. So I care a lot about how people are perceiving what I'm doing. Um, and and I, I value audience responses hugely. I mean, I feel like readers are my people. I want to meet them everywhere. And the fact that, you know, anyone who comes to an event of mine is probably a reader just makes me feel like I'm finding people in, in the world that I want to find. Um, so I care a lot about readers, actually. I guess I'm answering the question and hearing my answer. I care a lot. Well, readers have loved your work, and you've had you know extraordinary reviews. In fact, I read some of the reviews that you've written. Uh, you wrote a very good review of the first novel I ever taught uh, by Edith Wharton. Um, but there's also um, there's a sense when you're reading... Um, I'm, I'm trying to pinpoint this question in the way I really want it to be served to you, that um, do you learn from the people who read your books? Do you? Uh, I'm talking about the reviewers who review your books. And if they're critical, how does that affect you? Or if, I mean, I don't know if you really even had that many critical reviews in your day. 
I've had plenty of mixed or bad reviews. I I don't really look to reviews to help me with my writing. That's the answer. Um, partly because I think that they're, the reviews are serving a different purpose. I am not the intended audience of a review. <laughs> you know, they're writing for their audience and they're doing their job, which is giving their frank assessment of the book. But for me, if I've done my due diligence, it doesn't really feel like a great use of my time and mental energy to engage with those opinions. For me, that falls into the into the category of, you know, the, the aftermath of publishing a book, at which point it belongs to the world. Um, so I don't read reviews very carefully. I find that bad bad things can really reverberate through my mind in an unhelpful way. Um, and and good things are nice, but it's it, it makes more sense to just keep a distance. All of that said, readers have, I mean, helped me understand the work itself. I mean, I, I learned so many things that actually, in retrospect, are so obvious from readers. Here's just one example from A Visit from the Goon Squad. It begins and ends with Sasha and Alex. So Sasha and, and a very young guy named Alex meet and they have a one night stand. And that's in chapter one. And in the last chapter of the book, they're not reunited, but there's a sort of intersection again of those two. What I did not know until a reader pointed it out to me is that Sasha and Alex are the same name. <laughs> Sasha is a nickname of Alexander. Yeah. So those are the kinds of things. I mean, I have chills even remembering that. This this happens all the time. Readers and sometimes even like honestly podcasters or interviewers will point things out to me that that are clearly true but I wasn't consciously aware of them and I gulp that stu stuff up and you know steal it for my own insights. <laughs> Let me go to some more questions. Eric from Washington, D.C. says, how well do your unconscious writings parallel your subconscious dreams, the parts you can remember? Is there a lot of subject or context crossover? That is such a great question. I've started thinking a lot about dreams. Um, because, you know, dreams, when we dream at night, we are, or anytime, we are creating works of art. I think dreams meet the definition of a work of art because we're transforming the, our the daily stuff of our lives into symbolic narrative works. I entirely agree. Although I don't necessarily think they're the royal road to the unconscious, as Freud believed, but they they do have the elements of art in every sense. I think they're completely driven by the unconscious, though. I mean, it's obviously not our conscious mind. So it's dreams. I mean, and sometimes dreams are very obvious, like, you know, anxiety dreams. Uh, for me, it's always that I have to be in a play because I've never really acted. Um, and it's terrifying. And I think, oh, my God. Oh, wait know, a but, minute. You're but, married to a playwright. <laughs> well, to a director. That's probably one reason we're still married, that I don't act. Um but anyway, so um, so so sometimes dreams are obvious, but I actually think dreams are such complex um, symb sim uh, symbolic texts and often really colorful and vivid. That said, I can't say that I use things from dreams or anything like that, but what I found is that the period after when I first wake up, but before I like I'm sort of on my feet, is a really useful time in which to think about problem solving in fiction. So I think I'm 
close enough to the dream state that I'm able to harness ideas that might not come to me as readily once I'm fully conscious. And I, I have really started to feel that there's like a 30 minute period in there where I can get amazing work done. <laughs> or at least I'm telling myself that as I decide to lie in bed for another <laughs> 30 minutes. But I've, I've come to really honor sleeping and dreaming as, as creative acts. And I've, I indulge myself way more than I used to. I used to be, you know, forcing myself out of bed, not letting myself get enough sleep. And I've, I've come completely the other way as I more and more recognize that I, those are, that is time I'm spending with my unconscious and it, it has given me my career. So why am I skimping? Yeah, but you're in control when you're writing of your unconscious. I mean, the, the greatest psychoanalytic critics have pointed out, literary critics have pointed out that you need that control. You need that mastery. If you just took your dreams and interpreted them onto the page, it suddenly would be useless almost. But well, me... there's a running joke in the candy house about, um, oh, that's right. well, there, there's a couple that in their marriage vows, they agree not to make each other listen to their dreams. This is the old notion, nothing could be more boring than sharing your dreams with someone, even if you love. Here's Juan from Mexico City who wants to know, what is your point of view about printed books versus electronic books with all its possibilities? I have no, anything that helps people read books, I am a, a fan of. Um, I really, I, you know, personally, I don't, I don't really like screens, so I'm not especially inclined toward electronic books, although they are, it's, it's a huge help to be able to read like transcripts or I, for working on Manhattan Beach, I was reading a lot of books that were not physically gettable. These were like out of print and rare books. So I love the, the possibility of reading on a screen and I recognize the, the benefit of being able to have so many possible books to read and not having to carry them all with you. I myself am an audio maniac. I mean, we were talking, touching on Clarissa a, a little bit ago, Michael. I don't know if I told you, I read that on audio. It was more than a hundred hours of listening. And it, it's even more because I backtrack constantly. I had the physical book too, but I mostly listened. So anything that helps people resist the forces of distraction and read deeply is, is our friend. Isn't there something, though, about holding a book in your hand, even the olfactory sense of a book, the smell of it and all that? I mean, I find that very inviting, much more than, say, using a Kindle or something like that. I do too, but I, I have to remember that I'm technically a baby boomer, you know, that some of this is really generational. And I'm, although I will say both of my kids who are in college also seem to prefer physical books, but, you know, some of this is just taste. And I think we, we have a tendency to want things to be the way they were when we were first introduced to them. So I'm always a little wary of, of imposing my own preferences in that way. I, and especially when it comes to reading. Uh, Some people will say, I hope it's okay. I listened to your book on audio and I feel like, oh my God, are you kidding me? I mean, it's better than okay. It's anything that, any way to read is a good way. I really feel that. Here's Chad from Missouri who says, do you have mental exercises that help to overcome writer's block or creative challenges when you just don't feel like you're moving forward? Another great question. Um, I, I think that my mental exercise comes down to this. For me, writer's block is the is 
a hesitation to write because the writing will be bad. That's kind of, it seems to me that's what writer's block is, the inability to write well. I don't require that I write well. <laughs> In fact, I often write very badly. So what I look to is not quality, but quantity. When I'm writing original material, all I require of myself is five to seven handwritten pages a day. And if I have filled those pages, I might not feel great about them, although I don't know that they're bad because I haven't read them over. But I remind myself, you did your job. That was the job. When I was working on my novel, The Keep... It's like it, punching it, a time clock, huh? <laughs> well, it kind of feels that way. Yeah. I mean, I won't let myself write, you know, blah, 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 blah for five pages. But when I was working on The Keep, my working title was A Short Bad Novel. <laughs> that was what it was called because I thought... I know it's bad. I hope it will be short. And if I call it a short, bad novel, how can I disappoint myself? Oh, that novel has a special place in my heart. I mean, it really was a kind of gothic novel. And you were experimenting with form in ways that were really quite impressive. Uh, I mean, just that versatility, again, of what you've been able to do with the novel through your career. Um, I want to get back, though, to uh, talking about your work with Penn and what really stood out for you. You were talking about the terrible exigencies and obstacles that writers face in other countries and everything. What really opened your eyes, especially in the role you were playing, a leadership role? Well, I think in a way, I mean, this has nothing to do with the writing or, or the novel, but for me, just playing a leadership role was was a, a occasion for personal growth and development because when I got to New York, I knew that I wanted to write fiction. And I also knew that I'm such a pleaser that if I took a quote unquote real job, I would just, all I would want to do was succeed in that job and I would never be able to write. So I did very menial work for years. And what that meant was that I never, I was always taking orders. I was never leading anyone or anything. I had never had an occasion to really lead. And I also haven't done much teaching. So for me, just actually leading a group of people, namely the board of PEN America, was a huge, uh, it was just a real challenge. And it was such a joy to become more comfortable in that role. Um, I think in terms of insights I came away with, I think maybe the biggest one is a little bit what we touched on before. You know, I, I'm so um, I'm so conditioned to want to argue for the relevance of the of, of fiction and persuade people to be English majors, which I still think should be the default major. <laughs> and if I could control things, it would be, um, you know, I, I, to argue for to, to, to argue for holding on to the, the relatively small bit of cultural territory that the novel still occupies. But it's really revelatory to see that in, in other countries, countries run by autocrats, the novel is considered to be a potent and dangerous form. <laughs> and writers are considered to be potent and dangerous entities. And it's really a reminder of how powerful writing is. Um, and so that was, I mean, it's, it's, it's horrifying to see writers, you know, uh, imprisoned or even killed, if you think about Khashoggi, um, you know, for, for their words. But it is a reminder that this stuff really does matter. And the fact that we aren't sure whether it matters or not 
is a sign and, and evidence of the degree to which we take democracy for granted. Um, so that was that is a big takeaway for me. When you think about writers being persecuted for fiction, of course, the name that comes immediately to mind in most people's minds is Rushdie. And, you know, he thought he was safe here in the United States, and then he's attacked at Chautauqua in a way that was just completely unpredictable. Uh, and um, there's always that kind of lone wolf thing that writers face, too, um, especially. I, I'm yes, just, and, and yeah. Salman has been a, a major part of Pan America for decades. I mean, he it was under his guidance that we developed the World Voices Festival um, after 9-11. I mean, he's he is a uh, he's a, a deep mainstay of the organization. And a force of nature, even despite what he's gone through now. I mean, uh, he just put out another novel recently, and uh, I was very pleased, as I'm sure you were, to see that. Um, there's a character in Candy House who just screams, and um, I keep thinking about him. He keeps kind of haunting my imagination and wondering. Sometimes it's almost reflective to me of what writers are trying to do, isn't it? Well, it's interesting. I mean, he he is obsessed with something that I think we, uh, as a culture, are somewhat obsessed with, which is the feeling that so, uh, that a lot of what we see around us and certainly uh, in social media is is mediated, which by definition is true. Um, and and I think that this cultural preoccupation with authenticity, which we can find evidence of everywhere. For example, at one point I was riding the subway with my son, um, I guess it was almost a year ago now, and he suddenly took pictures of both of us. And I said, what are you doing? The, the lighting is terrible here. Um, and he said, oh, well, it's this new app called Be Real. Um, and it, and it, 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 pings you at a certain time and you have to take pictures of your surroundings at that moment, but you don't know when the moment will come. And the whole idea is not to curate your surroundings and get the good angles. It's just, you know, the raw, authentic you. Well, I was in heaven because it was yet another manifestation of mass media's attempt to give us the very authenticity it is depriving us of. <laughs> So Alfred, in a way, has has you know is is a um, has pushed to an absurd degree the feeling that many of us have that we're we're surrounded by you know fakery, and so he comes up with a way that he thinks is a, a brilliant way of generating authentic responses in the people around him, which is that he just starts screaming, as you say, and of course people think there's an emergency, they're freaking out, they're terrified. At one point, he likens it to um, the expressions on the faces of people in a plane plunging headlong toward the sea. So he loves this, but obviously this is not a sustainable way to live. And the, the chapter about Alfred basically sh shows us the undoing of this, what he calls his screaming project. But I do find that it's really fun sometimes to take an exaggerated version of something that I feel myself and know that others feel and see what happens dramatically if I, if I play that out. Again, back to the improvisation. Improvisation really is central to your work. I mean, you keep coming back to it over and over again, and it plays an integral role, obviously, in your vision of what literature should be and how it should be created. Well, I don't know if it. it I don't know if I would say that everyone has to work that way. I mean, you again, I think way. about. Yeah. 
I think about you, Graham Greene with his one perfect page. Um, you know, he he was not maybe improvising too much, but he was writing great books. For me, this is the only way to do it. But I think each of us has to find our process that brings the best work out of us. And for me, that is the improv. Well, when you mention Graham Greene, it makes me think about, you even had uh, some elements of Graham Greene in The Visit from the Goon Squad, uh, CIA-type stuff or spies or whatever. Yeah, I, I really love some of Greene's books. Um, and uh, yeah, he I was a huge um, fan of his. And also Robert Stone, who I think of as Graham Greene's successor, you know, both very Catholic writers. Yeah. They wrote usually in the third person. Um, very There was something very similar about their voices, and I think both were big influences on me. Well, you know, I've got a little uh, hypothetical for you. If uh, there's this whole school of study in literature called intertextuality, where you look for the work and how it has resonance from previous works and even sometimes works that succeeded. If we were to go into your unconscious and look for the intertextuality of what the major influences have been and so forth, what would we find? Well, I sometimes think that I'm not the best judge of that. You know, that's really where literary scholarship comes in. And one reason I, I appreciate it so much, because it's I think it's hard for the for a writer to know. I can know whom I hope I've been influenced by, but that may or may not really be there. But I can say that, like, you know, I mean, books that have meant a lot to me and that I have consciously emulated include uh, for sure The House of Mirth. Edith Wharton. Probably if I did just pick one novel that's my favorite, it would be that. Um, I also love Invisible Man, um, Ralph Ellison, another just American classic that I, I feel sort of operating in me, I hope. Maybe that more obviously than Wharton, because he really, he really, Ellison really took an exaggerated version of reality and occupied it as a way of making a point and making many points. Um, I also, you know, I studied in England for a couple of years after college and I read voluminously, you know, Shakespeare, Greek tragedy. Um, I, I think about, I, I feel like though reading all that classic work for two years gave me a kind of literary DNA to draw on that I don't think I would have had otherwise and that I am very, very grateful for. Um, but, I, but you know, it's I, I look to the scholars to tell me what I'm really doing. <laughs> well, you taught literature, and you clearly loved teaching literature, didn't you? I did. I don't think I was that great at it. I hope to get better. Um, but I did really love it, partly because it, it feels like there's so many things you can do with a work of literature. I mean, of course, you can use it as, as a symbolic text and talk about all of the things that are in it. And just the act of doing that encourages critical thinking and all kinds of other things that are very good. But it also becomes such a great prism through which to look at its cultural moment. You know, we started with Trollope um, and we ended with Joan Didion. So we looked at about a hundred years of writing in English and we looked at the mores governing female sexual behavior in particular and traced the way that we could read what the what the rules were culturally just from a single work of of literature. Um, and then, you know, it, it's it was fun to just I, I used lots of 
um, slides and images. You know, Anthony Trollope's mother was a best-selling writer. She wrote about America in the in the 1820s. And so we we looked at her work. And I mean, there's just, it, it leads in every possible direction. And so there's so much to talk about. Yeah, I love that from Trollope to Didion. It reminds me, there used to be a course from Beowulf to Virginia Woolf, you know, just covering all that. That uh, has a better ring to it. <laughs> here's Chris from Tempe, Arizona, wants to know, how important is your editor in your writing and publishing process, and what do they add or subtract? My editor is fantastic and and essential. I, I use many readers because I, I find that most people can only, well, it kind of goes without saying that you can only read a book fresh once. Once someone has read it, then they they have a prior impression of it. And so I have, I use layers of readers, I would say. And my editor is toward the end of the process. So I'm giving it to her when I feel like I and many readers have done everything I can. And now I want to get her impressions. And she is really a very um, insight, first of all, insightful in a big picture way, but also a really good line editor. So she will notice redundancies or, you know, moments where I could pick things up, um, point of view problems, things like that. So I really rely heavily on her feedback. Um, but, but not just her feedback, because for me, this period before publication is my only chance to solve every problem I can find. And it can be very painful. I mean, getting feedback, finding out there are still problems is a nightmare. Like I have one reader, she actually lives in the Bay Area. She knows who she is, who's an amazing reader. And she um, is very, very critical. She didn't have time to read The Candy House when I sent it to her the first time. And so she didn't. And I thought, well, that's okay. I, I won't I won't worry about that. Um, but I, it kept nagging at me that her eyes hadn't been on it. So even when I had gotten all kinds of feedback, including my editor, I thought, I'm going to send it to her. And I did. And I got lots of criticism. And at first I thought, oh, why did I do this? I'm so frustrated. I don't want to hear this. But she found things no one else found, and I had a chance to fix them. I was just thinking for some reason of Horace, believe it or not, who said the purpose of literature is to please and instruct. You once said the purpose of literature, from your perspective, is more to provide pleasure. Is it to instruct as well, though? Well, I think that it instructs without it. It, it does a lot of unintentional storytelling. Um, and that's kind of what I mean about the the kind of the compression of information in fiction written at a certain time. And the reason we were able, for example, in my class to use literature as a way of understanding cultural assumptions and rules about female sexual behavior. But fiction that is overly, overtly didactic is not of interest to me. For me, fiction is a place to ask questions rather than answer them. That's just a personal opinion and kind of personal taste. Uh, but I I do not particularly like the feeling of being instructed when I read fiction. I have nonfiction for that. And I don't think it's necessary because I'm being instructed either way. Well, when you mentioned Ralph Ellison before, you just made me think of something he said, that it's uh, 
if I wanted to write didactic uh, fiction, I maybe or didactic works, I would have been a sociologist rather than wanting to be a literary artist. Do you think of yourself as an artist? I mean, the word sounds very lofty. Yeah, it does, <laughs> but nevertheless. <laughs> I mean, I guess so. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I don't know what else I, I am, um, but I, I I really hope that, that what I'm doing approaches art. I think it does. And I think another word for what you're doing is storytelling and doing it with extraordinary skill and ability. All the mutations that it goes through, notwithstanding, all of the readings and criticism and editing and so forth, all the drafts, um, the final product is what we look at and that's what matters. It's been delightful. Always is talking to you. Thank you, Michael. I always enjoy it so much. Jennifer Egan. And thanks to all of you who got to hear us live with Jennifer Egan, who sent in questions and comments. And thanks also to all of you who will hear this in the uh, imminent future or not so imminent future. And we invite you to join our growing community of podcast listeners to Gray Matter with Michael Krasny simply by going to graymatter.show and gratitude to the great Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, Kevin, and Molokai, and special bountiful thanks to our guest, Jennifer Egan. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.